Great. Well, it's great to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, so you, you saw my article in the Epic Times on your study, and you said you, you liked it. You, you thought it was an accurate summary of some of the findings? Yeah, I, fe- I felt that you you did a, a very good job summarizing summarizing the study. Sure. Yeah. Great. So did you just want to give a brief background of uh, your involvement with the whole COVID pandemic? Because I know you mentioned a few things over email and how you were heavily involved in uh, what was happening in the hospital in New Orleans. Is that correct? Actually, it was a rural hospital. It's in an area called uh, Thibodeau, Louisiana. It's about an hour and a half from New Orleans. It's a little bit more of a rural hospital. And uh, uh, yeah, I was working there through, been working there for about five years. So it's, and at night, I usually work at night. And when I'm at night, I'm the only physician in in the hospital. So I, I have to respond to every every emergency that occurs within the hospital. And typically in a month, I would see, you know, two or three events happen inside the hospital in the ICU such. So that would have like a cardiac arrest or they would need to be intubated. But then in the, in the during the first wave of COVID, uh, there was, and, and also this happened, you know, through multiple waves, but every shift was, I was seeing two to three um, people a day having like cardiac arrest or need to be intubated. It was a, a level of death that I, I had, none of us had ever experienced before. And so it was quite an extreme, and this was, you know, back in March, during March, 2020, uh, during the first wave, uh, really, really kind of a, it, it was a harrowing uh, experience to, to go through. Mm. And and I would assume most of those people in the ICU, the vast majority would be elderly, have underlying health conditions. Is is that correct? Uh, yeah, everyone pretty much who I who I saw who was sick was was over the age of fifty five. I'd say and, right. Yeah, and, and so that that you know that's one important thing that you know we could just kind of quickly touch on. Is that what oh, we talk about? I actually we... would want to take that back. It's not all over 55. And people who were severely o- obese, you, there was uh, some, there were several people who were severely obese who were definitely quite sick. And some of them, some of them did die. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense based on my understanding of the data hmm. um, that obviously many people have gotten ill with COVID and have died. And that's tragic. And, we need to look at what could have been done to have prevented that earlier, potentially. But I think early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of fear when you looked at just raw hospitalization numbers or COVID deaths. I mean, there was the first issue was were people dying? How many people are dying from COVID versus with COVID? That that was one big issue, and then it wasn't clear to some people who was dying of COVID. Right? These hundreds of deaths or thousands of deaths in whatever span of time, is this like a general representation of the population or is this heavily skewed in one direction or the other? And I think the media didn't do a good job of, of covering that. And so you had a lot of people like in their 20s and 30s who weren't obese, didn't have underlying health conditions, who would look at these sensationalized kind of media stories, which are real. Like you, you were at the front lines dealing with this. Um, all this chaos and all this tragedy, but that somehow 
kind of translated for some people as like, oh, wow, this is this is horrible. And maybe I'm at risk as a healthy 37 year old who isn't obese, who doesn't have any major health conditions. And so that that's, I think, one big issue is recognizing who, who you know, who's getting hospitalized with COVID. I, I think there was one study that showed about 78 percent of all COVID ICU admissions were people who were severely obese. Um, and I think there was another study um, that showed that like the average person hospitalized with COVID had like two or three comorbidities, something like that. Yeah, so I, I think would, it's important to keep that in mind. Yeah. I would say that that matches up with my anecdotal experience. Yeah, for sure. And, and the, the, with the, what you're speaking about with the news, the, the issue that I, I would say with that would be, yes, I don't think that they translated the, the risk factors, the, they didn't transmit that well in their, in their news stories. In fact, it was every time there was a young, healthy person who, who, who did die of, of COVID, this was, that would, their story would be in the, in the news. And so they were focusing on these very rare cases um, rather than what were the, and then combining that with the numbers of people who were, who, who were dying. And so it, it did maybe create a, an inaccurate view. Right. And, and then there was the issues with the seroprevalence data as well. You know, like the, yes, it's it, according to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya Stanford. He's a good friend. He's contributed yeah. to many of my articles. A great guy, Dr. Vinay Prashad, Dr. Marty Macri from Johns Hopkins. Like all these people have also pointed out that, um, there was potential underestimating, uh, a potential underestimation of how many people got COVID. And so when you have a, sm- a, a, smaller denom- a smaller denominator and you have, you know, a, a numerator of, you know, whatever, 100 deaths, that's going to seem like a much more uh, pronounced risk than if you actually capture the true seroprevalence of how many people are getting COVID, then suddenly the percentage of, of deaths is very, very small. So that, that was one, I think, other kind of error that wasn't really uh, taken into account at the very beginning, and that created a lot of fear as well. Yeah, well, I, yeah, estimating the uh, the infection fatality rate is is it was difficult, and it's also going to be very different in in different countries because of the basically age structure and obesity rates and risk factors. So it's it's not going to be the same rate in in every country. Mm. So, yeah. for example, in uh, in Africa, where their median there's countries where the median age is is 15, um, so half the population is below the age of 15. So you end up in and and there's very low obesity. So you end up with in in those countries the infection fatality rate is going to be incredibly low. And versus a country like the the United States, where our we have a you know pretty older an older population comparatively and a much more obese and much many more risk factors would have a higher infection fatality rate but so it's a, each each country essentially would have would have a slightly different one which makes it very difficult for communicating that uh uh you know to the to the pop to the general public mm. right but i, I want to actually you touch on one other thing that you mentioned where people were talking about dying with covid or dying of COVID. And I, I can say that in the first, at least the first two or three waves prior to Omicron, I, I rarely saw a situation where a person was who was dying with COVID that where it was someone, you know, 
in a car accident or, and they just happened to have COVID or, you know, there was almost every case that I was seeing in the first couple of waves was pretty clearly had the syndrome of COVID-19 where they, they had all they they were essentially dying of shortness of breath and, and just full, uh, organ failure. But what happened in during the Omicron wave, and actually, when I go back to the first waves, what was interesting is I would, you know, see the the charts on the um, what they're showing us like, oh, hospitalization, um, cases are rising, I'd go into work. And it was like the weather. I would see like, oh, cases are rising. Oh, let's see what's happening in the hospital. And yep, I would see cases rising. Then, you know, a week or two later, hospitalizations are rising, I'd go into the hospital and be like, yep, hospitalizations are rising, then deaths that's rising. Yep. That's, and it was always, it was very accurate, very much like the weather. And then that changed though, during Omicron where infections were going up, that was accurate, but people weren't getting hospitalized, but they were saying that we're having an increase in hospitalizations. And what that was is exactly what you were talking about, where it was, people were being hospitalized because, you know, there was a point where I think it was in January, this last January, where infections were just so high in the general public that there were maybe like 10 to 15% of anyone if you just tested them at the time had COVID. So you'd expect just 10 to 15% of the hospital hospitalized population would have it even unrelated to if, if COVID is causing their, their reason for their hospitalization. So since, since Omicron, I feel like that the, our hospitalization and death numbers are, are, are quite inaccurate because distinguishing exactly between that. But prior to that, I, I, I think they were actually, at least from my anecdotal experience, I'd say they seemed to, that it would be pretty accurate. Mm. Right. And, and I mean, even that distinction between somebody dying just from COVID without underlying risk factors versus somebody dying from COVID with risk factors, I, I think that's also just, like I said already, an important distinction. And I yes. assume that that, that number is going to be vanishingly small, right? Somebody who's not like a healthy 21-year-old or a healthy 35-year-old that's not obese and doesn't have health conditions, right? That that almost, you know, that that's almost impossible, right? It, it, it can happen, but it's extremely rare. Yeah, I've never seen it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, some people go as far as to say that never happens, but I, I don't, I'm not sure um, what percentage of that, like how rare is that to happen? I'm not quite sure about that yeah but i I'm, i can't yeah. tell you exactly the numbers on that but it's it, it's definitely low it's yeah. low but 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 there was an issue i mean um i think do you know alex berenson at all i have heard of him okay yeah he's so he's kind of a fearless covid reporter that everybody hates <laughs> he's a, he writes on substack um and so he was talking early on in the pandemic how different states had very broad measures to capture COVID hospitalizations. And so many, in many States, somebody coming in, somebody coming in with a gunshot wound or a car accident who tested positive for COVID that would count as a COVID case. So, I mean, from your experience, that doesn't seem to be a major factor, but I would imagine. It, it just you know, wasn't, it yeah. wasn't that common uh, of, right. of a situation, right? So that, the percentage of the population that had COVID at any of those times during the first waves, like that these incidental events of someone having COVID and also just needing to be hospitalized for something else, they were, I'm sure that they occurred, but they were a, a very small, they were probably a small percentage of the yeah. total c- c- 
COVID-19 hospitalizations and, and, and deaths. Um, but that changed, I think, as with, with Omicron. Sure. It's, it's, I, I can't, it's, of course it happened. I'm sure it happened, but it's, I think there's a, there's a distinction of if it's like, okay, there's a small percentage of these that are those, then it's still pretty accurate. But if it's when it starts being the, the majority of them are just randomly hospitalized and also happen to have COVID, then, then the numbers are completely inaccurate. Right. So before we talk about your study, can we talk about your vaccine exemption? Why you were seeking a vaccine exemption? And what your well, personal view on that was, if you feel comfortable talking about sure. it at all? Yeah, sure. So it was a uh, when the vaccine came out, uh, it was, I had done some analysis for it for a uh, physician website called the, the NNT. And so I'd run through all of the Pfizer data, um, all the FDA briefings and, and such. And, and I didn't, I, as I was going through it, I, I simply, I didn't see that, I didn't find clear problems with uh, harm initially. I, I, thought that there was the study wasn't done in you know the there were problems with the study and and basically what they were even looking for they should have been looking for that it's reducing hospitalizations or that it's reducing infections and instead they they chose to look at uh reducing symptomatic infections and so and 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 the antibodies right they were studying level of antibody (laughs) response they didn't yeah uh, oh to the vaccine they're like if they received, if their antibodies to spike to the spike protein were in, increased, is that what you mean? Yes. Yes. They, that was, that was part of the early, the early data. Um, but also okay. that's not valuable information because we don't know what the, we don't have a good grasp of how much antibody you need for it to be protective. So it's not, it's not, a, it's not a useful surrogate for, for figuring it out. You need, you really, what you ideally would have had is, is hospitals is the study should have been geared towards reducing hospitalization. Uh, so there was, there was that issue that I, that I had initially. Or, or, and, or also like if, if they also just looked at infection, but they did four months of that and noticed you know, the waning efficacy, like that could also be useful. Like hypothetically, if a vaccine can stop infection in, in anybody in almost all cases for several months, you know, yes. like that, that would also be a good indicator, but that, that didn't happen either. Yes, and I had concerns given also of its that it was a novel platform using these messenger RNA vaccines, and so the novelty of it concerned me. In that, typically when we when you look at any new medical intervention, if you from the day that it's approved towards out out with time, you tend to always have the the harm benefit ratio always always worsens in that. Either it's less of, we find out, you know, a couple years usually later that it's maybe it's either less effective than we initially thought or, or it's, or we discover new harms with it. And uh, that's just the general trend, you know, with, with any medical intervention. So I was a little bit uncomfortable just by the, the novelty of, of the vaccine. And so my initial, when it was offered to me and and I was offered, you know, as soon as it was approved, I, I turned it down. Um, was, you know, thinking that we needed to just wait and see kind of what what happens with this. And I was going to decide based on as the data came in. And then I, I became more and more concerned as I realized that it was very, very difficult to even write anything critical publicly about the vaccine. So I, I realized just that we 
we don't have the normally there's you know maybe a hundred thousand people even trying to like look at okay look at these uh, a new drug intervention looking at it critically and I felt like those people were not speaking up they were not identifying these issues that that I was seeing uh, for example in the trial they had a they had a category called um, suspected but unconfirmed and there were thousands of these suspected but unconfirmed cases. And so we were uncertain of what, what that meant and were they all, were they just not, did you just not test thousands of people who had, who appeared to have symptoms? And that's a huge problem because the, the, they only had, it was like 170 people with, with COVID-19 in the placebo group, I believe. So if they, if they missed testing a thousand, thousands of people, it was a, that's clearly of concern. And, uh, I was initially, I was just directly speaking with, uh, I, I, my, my email, I was sending out emails to find out what happened with this that eventually led to the top of, uh, basically, uh, the Biden coronavirus, uh, coronavirus, uh, the, the, the SAR basically of this. And he responded saying, uh, we, we looked into it and it's, it's nothing to worry about, but, I, I was concerned. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want him just to tell me that, that he's not concerned that they looked into it. I needed, I wanted to see the numbers of how many of these people were not tested because that that's clearly of, of importance and why that, you know, we just, we actually don't even still don't have the data on how many, on how many people that were, how many tests were performed. Cause if you have an imbalance in how many people and how in the testing between the placebo and the vaccine group, you can, you can basically, you know, manipulated and make it appear that there's that they're effective when they're not if you, if you don't you know if you test a thousand if you're testing a thousand people in the placebo group and you test a hundred people in the vaccine group that's a, that's a that's an issue and you're so typically you would report how many tests you've done it would be one of the first graphs or tables in your in, in a study like this and they just didn't they didn't report that data so i was chasing that down couldn't get the information couldn't publish on it anywhere and, um, and so that was very, that just concerned me off the top where it was like, here's a clear issue. And yet I'm not able to even get anything written about it. Mm. So, so, so yeah, so you're outlining some of the issues with the initial data. And so you're, you're saying, first of all, they didn't test for the right things. They didn't test for the hospitalizations or infections for a long period of time. Right. I think, was it, I think two months, two months. Yeah. Period? Yeah. Yeah. So they tested it for two months. And in two months, they didn't find significant uh, decrease in efficacy, right? So based on two months of data, it, it looked like after two months, the protectiveness was still very strong against infection, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's issue number one. And then to summarize, issue number two is that there were a lot of people who were, uh, there were a lot of unexplained cases that weren't used in the trial data. Is that what you meant? They called them suspected, but unconfirmed. Uh, it turns out that, you know, I, I figured that even if I got the information, it wouldn't even be a big problem. And, and maybe it was, was nothing. And it just was something that was overlooked and not reported. But the fact that it wasn't reported is, is a prop was a problem to me that they, they had several thousand suspected, but unconfirmed cases, which to me means you had people who you didn't test. And if there's thousands of those, that's, that's a big problem. Mm. So, so suspected, but not confirmed, that means 
well, suspected COVID cases? Yes, mean? suspected symptoms. Their symptoms were, were consistent with COVID. But it, it turns out that in, in the a later document that, that was released, that turned out actually to not be a, a large problem in that oh, for okay. some reason, most of those people were tested and they were negative. And, and it wasn't actually even a big issue. Uh, so it's, so it's kind of, it, it was just data that wasn't reported that people should have been talking about and, and saying, we need this, this needs to be reported. And it, it's the issue that, that, that wasn't being raised, not by really the only person who, who did raise it actually was, uh, was Peter Doshi, who it's actually how I ended up getting in touch with him was to talk about that, that data. He was able to publish it as a, you know, as, as you know, in the, in the BMJ. Mm. Yeah, Peter Dosey seems to be another one of these figures who's taking who's taking a lot of heat, right, for, for what he said about the vaccine. Yes, yeah, from a lot yes. of quote unquote mainstream popular scientists, if you will. Yes, he he certainly has. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, okay. So before we move on, what, was there any other issue with the initial data, which which is going to segue into the study as well, but also uh, your personal reason for not getting vaccinated? But other than those two things. Was there anything else? Like, was it, were you concerned with safety potentially that, you know, like, like a big point that people were dismissing was that there's no long-term safety data, which it's, it's completely unknown. And so you say that to somebody, you know, last year, I would, I would say that to somebody and I'm 21 unvaccinated, you know, I'm a journalist writing about these issues and was digging deep into the data and I just didn't see a clear benefit. I didn't see a clear threat to my health. And I didn't see any clear data on long-term safety. But when I said that, and I'm not the only one <laughs> by far, when we said this, it was, oh, that's, that's conspiracy thinking to insinuate that there might be something dangerous about this. When like that, as far as I know, that's not how science works. Like you have to prove that this is safe. Not that I have to prove that this is not safe by limited data. Right. So, and that we, we can go deeper into that, but then that pe people like myself were unfortunately thinking along the right lines with the myocarditis, especially all the menstrual irregularities, um, some of the other issues as well. But was that also another concern for you? Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's that, that, that was definitely of, of concern, which is why I was saying to uh, my opinion of it when it first came out was I was going to wait and see to if I was going to get the vaccine, particularly for reasons such as that. I also, another issue with the trial was that they didn't report all-cause hospitalization, which is a problem because you should, we should expect that a medication like this, uh, it should, you know, at least in theory, we should be seeing that the all-cause hospitalization should be reduced in the, in the, in the vaccine group. And uh, it's just not reported. So uh, we don't have the data on all-cause hospitalization. We still don't. Okay. Um, was, was there anything else that also troubled you? No, I think we, we hit the major, the major, okay. the major points that, I, that initially I was concerned with, yeah. And then actually then what happened is I became more concerned in, in uh, must have been a couple months after the vaccine was approved, not, uh, was authorized when uh, data came out suggesting that the spike protein was, was uh, causing all this was, was the mechanism for kind of all the random harm that COVID causes, where it causes heart attacks and strokes and blood clots. 
and all these other things. When every, when, you know, back in the beginning of COVID, when we'd learn like every day, like that COVID doesn't cause a new problem. And when that data was released, that was the moment where I, I started to become much more concerned about the possibility of, of adverse events. Cause I initially was, was thinking it's the not the novel platform is going to be the issue would have been would have been the issue but the fact that we used a protein that now we know has toxic is toxic and we have a vaccine that's now making a toxic protein in our bodies that that definitely raised some concern that this could be that could be an issue and um that's kind of where we started in in for our study that we that was kind of our our aim we identified we took that as our starting point that if the spike protein is causing harm, what would, what would it, what would it look like? Mm. Before we go on, I just want to say that I kept this room private and somebody came in, William, who I, I don't know personally, but um, I, I kept this room private because this was such a sensitive subject and very controversial as well. But do you prefer to keep this private and then we can upload it later um, or, or is it okay if we just open it to the public and usually 10 or 15 people join? I, I think it's probably best that we keep it private for now. Cause if we, if, if anything is spoken, that is factually okay. in, incorrect. I, I don't want, uh, I don't want to say anything that's factually in, like incorrect accidentally. And then, okay. and then have that be broadcasted because it's, it's simply right now, this is, we are being heavily, monitored on every everything that we say right yeah okay and and, and, and seen, also to be fair i don't want yep. to spread information that's untrue right and once we finish this and hopefully there isn't anything um that we spoke incorrectly about then i will upload this on spotify apple um so that we, we yep. can talk about that after that that's what i Perfect. always do Perfect. okay so so you didn't so you opted not to get the vaccine now to tell me if I'm wrong, but you experienced a lot of grief in that regard. Were you threatened with having your job taken away, pressure from your colleagues? Like, what what, what was that like? I mean, yeah, it was that it was when Pfizer vaccine got um, official FDA approval. My hospital, one of my hospitals, the following day uh, had a, a mandate for us to work there, and so that was uh, an issue for for me that. Uh, I, I eventually I was able to ask them. I asked them for an exemption, and and I was granted. I was granted the exemption. Mm. And uh, okay, before we go a bit deeper into that, um, I, I'm also just curious. Like, it's very strange to me how ordinarily very intelligent, critical thinking people, many people who've been skeptical of big pharma and of big corporations and profit motivated policies and pharmaceuticals and whatnot suddenly just embrace this wholly without any critical thinking, like many epidemiologists, journalists, I mean, well, white house officials, maybe that's not surprising, but so many seemingly intelligent people um, were embracing this and promoting this and saying that you should get this universally. I mean, many people that I've run into, some troubles with like Dr. Nicholas Christakis from Yale University, he and I have been corresponding. And he from the start was saying that it's, um, it's, it's kind of a moral responsibility for everyone to get vaccinated. And I'm just, just curious what your thoughts on that are on how 
very intelligent people just suddenly became just so captured by this kind of vaccine dogma. Yeah, uh, it's it, that definitely did happen, uh, but I'm not a hundred percent certain on what caused such a widespread lack of of uh, of critical of you know of critique of just the, of the studies of the you know just many of the things we we were just going over and the absence of that was was unusual to me and it's, I, I also think though that there was there was basically a if a, a precedent where if you were one of these academic uh, an academic or just a public intellectual and you spoke out against made any critiques of the vaccine uh, you were you were really chastised and you were actually pretty much risking your job. So you're risking your job. You're, you were potentially ruining, uh, like your, you know, res- just like how you're viewed and respected. And so, so there's, there are probably were a lot of people who just didn't say anything because they didn't want to lose their jobs. And so it created a, an environment where only one side of the discussion was really even allowed to be had. And then the only people who were, were bringing up the alternative were not your, were not the typical people who, who would, who would be raising these questions. They ended up being very random individuals, um, you know, on, you know, starting sub stacks and talking about this on online. Mm. Guys, guys, so, like, guys like so, Joe Rogan, Russell Brand. Uh, yeah. Alex, I, yeah. Prob- like you were saying before, like Barons, Alex Berenson, Right. And, and so, and then also, the way it was reported in, in, in news is, you know, if you went, they went to go get expert opinion, right? There, there's no one's going to give an expert opinion that says, that says anything critical because it risks their job. So then every news journalist is going to just start thinking like, oh, this act, everyone is in agreement. It, it would just feel like everyone's in agreement uh, because of a, just an environment of, of self-censorship actually. Yeah. And then there's actual, actual censorship that was, that was happening. But, but I believe self censorship is was much more of of an issue. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's just so just utterly strange to me um, how that all happened. I mean, pharmaceutical industries for pharmaceutical companies have a history of distorting data, of being incentivized by profit. I mean, I'm sure you know the history of Vioxx, which I've been learning recently. Yes, um, the amount of heart attacks that that caused. <laughs> Um, a number of other pharmaceutical drugs that ordinary family doctors prescribe that have many downstream harmful effects on your liver, on your digestion. I mean, things that I've been prescribed where I'm like, do I really need this? And then I look at the side effects and it's like, holy shit. No, I don't. I'd rather, I'd rather not have this particular medication for this thing. I may look for something else. So, you know, that, that's been pretty well documented, but suddenly people, I, I don't know, they just made a, big exception you know maybe they thought that this is a public health crisis so this you know what we would normally be very skeptical about we are going to treat as something that was divinely created because this is a a major issue and people are dying and again the kind of distorted premise of people are like people are at higher risk of covid than they actually are because of how the numbers were treated as, but it, it was all just very concerning to me how that happened and how the government mandates were just so widespread and 
you know, destroyed so many people's lives, like many, many people I know. And I don't have to get into all the social, political, and cultural ramifications of that, but it's it's still worth contemplating how how this happened so fast and how so many people complied and so many intelligent, reputable, critical thinking people became suddenly captured by something which they would ordinarily be very critical of. Yeah, I I agree. I, I think a large a large component of of it and not not the whole thing, but the these the fact checking articles uh, have become a um, they they prior to COVID nineteen they were essentially kind of like where you know they would be almost like opinion articles, but they, and everyone understood them as that. I, I remember seeing there's a percentage poll of like that people twenty it was like only twenty nine percent of this survey thought that um, fact checking was was reliable. Mm-hmm that these fact checkers were reliable. Then what happened during the COVID pandemic is these fact checkers ended up, ha- their power ended up not just writing silly articles that were maybe true or not true, but they actually, they, they ended up having a power where they were working with the social media groups where they actually led to your, any statement you made on an, on an article that would be then pushed, you know, put into social media it led to they, they would be either censored or labeled as, as misinformation or, you know, and so that created an environment where, where all news basically had to watch what they were writing. Cause they don't want to have their article censored. They don't want to have their article labeled mis, um, as misinformation, especially if you're, you know, a, a widespread newspaper or news organization, you, it's going to hurt your reputation to be, to have these labels and you're going to get less clicks on your articles and if you're an academic or a or a public intellectual, you don't want to have your reputation ruined by you know be having misinformation labels thro- thrown at you, and that that will pop up every time you know on on the social on these social media sites. And and the problem here is that the these fact checkers, what they the way that they essentially were checking facts is they would just go to the the government, they would just go to the CDC and ask an expert opinion from the CDC if, mm. if this is misinformation. So it amounted to government, a go- they've created a government level um, censorship machine where the, the CDC has obviously made a lot of statements that, that are not true. Yet we're using them as, this, as, a, as their, their opinion is actually what gets things censored. So it's a, it created a, an environment where you actually couldn't publicly oppose the CDC um, you know, w- without being labeled misinformation, right? And that's that's a huge that's a huge issue that we have right now. That's still t- currently preventing um, our newspapers and our public intellectuals and academics from speaking on this publicly. It's essentially they've created a ministry of truth that is they're deciding what is true and what is is false, and and that's really not how a democracy a democracy really can't function when our government's deciding what's true and what's false. And we know how wrong the CDC has been. We know exactly. how wrong they've been. Like, I am just stunned, man. And, like, I just, I, I try to remain rational when thinking about this because when I first started hearing about the vaccine and hearing about everything that was happening, I trusted the government, you know? And I, I had a few people uh, in social circles who were highly critical and highly skeptical. And I'm like, yeah, these people are kind of crazy, like, the government can't be bullshitting us. <laughs> like, okay, let's calm down. Let's listen to the experts because 
They yes. have degrees. They have degrees in uh, immunology and epidemiology. I don't. I'm just a, a guy who's writing articles. I don't really know anything. So I'm going to trust the CDC. I'm going to trust the Trudeau government here in Canada and what they're doing. But just the more I started reading, the more I realized that these so experts have been wrong about a lot. I mean, just one one example I've been looking at recently. Um, if there's any example that really struck um, you particularly, feel free to mention it. But for me, I was looking back, I think this was April of 2021 or May of 2021, when the CDC said, yeah, we've carefully looked at millions of vaccine uh, cases. We've looked at the data and we can't find a myocarditis signal. Right. Yeah. And as of, you know, very, very recently, actually, um, I don't know if you know Dr. Tracy Beth Hogue. Yes, I know her. She's on, on yeah, she, she's, she's phenomenal. I've corresponded with her a lot. You know, some of the figures that she was showing in her study last year, which uh, went viral on the Joe Rogan podcast and, and whatnot, um, she, you know, she was getting lambasted, her and a few other people that were part of that study for the estimate that we're showing, that they were showing because it was alarming what they were showing around one in 4,000, one in 5,000. Um, although estimates after that seem to show that the, the it's probably closer to one in 2000 for dose two young men. Um, but, uh, but, but recently the CDC has come up with numbers very close to that. I think uh, Dr. Vinay Prashad has been pointing this out in on Twitter. I think they were showing around one in 5,000 right now. So they were disastrously, disastrously wrong about the myocarditis um, at the very beginning and there's no retraction or no apology or no accounting for that. And there are of course many other examples where the CDC has been wrong. Exactly. And, and, and the fact fact checking articles have never fact checked them. They never fact check any, anything in, in they're only going in, in a predictable direction in what they would report on. So it's, it's, it's it's uh, alarming because they're if they're going to be fact checking they should be doing this on 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 both sides mm. and and this is not uh it's you know so for you know even for i know because our our paper was fact checked as as mislabeled when it was a preprint and mm, but now like Snopes um, or a few by multiple different fact checking sites uh by three three different fact checking sites uh and they and so we are now in we're now started communication with them regarding this because you know they they basically used they were using a their source for for their for this was a YouTube video these are, these are our, our fact checkers source was a YouTube video and that's absurd, that's absurd to to begin with but so but then so this YouTube video I believe was minimizing our results and yet but while other other you know news agencies other you know some of them maybe uh, uh, exaggerated our findings, uh, which is both of those are inappropriate. Mm. And and fact checking should happen on both sides of that. The people who are minimizing our our findings and people who are who are maxim who are exaggerating it. And that's what if if we had uh, an honest group doing this fact checking, then that's what it would look like. And it, it doesn't resemble even anything close to that. Mm. Yeah, and I was very careful in my coverage of this. Um, and I, I'm very, very careful with what I write. And I don't know if you know much about my background, but I, I kind of rose to um, a lot of media attention during the Black Lives Matter protests and riots with my coverage of those issues. And I've been very, very careful not trying to 
be swayed by left or right or one direction or the other. And so I'm, you know, very careful with what conclusions I draw and be very humble in what I understand. Um, but okay, so before we get into the study, well, one other question I have for you is, um, do you think that there are a lot of perverse financial incentives that have led to the mass approval distribution and recommendation and coercion of vaccines? Like I'm, I'm digging into this just now for the first time and looking at what some of those dynamics may be. Um, well, one thing that I've read recently, um, I hope I remember it correctly, was that the, the FDA's uh, committee or their their whole process for approving a medical uh, intervention or medicine, 75% of the funding for that comes from the companies that are trying to approve a certain product. That that seems to be very concerning. There are a few other things that um, I have read as well along those same lines that I'm currently investigating, which seem to suggest that there are perverse financial incentives for the FDA and the CDC to approve these things because they are perhaps profiting a lot from it. Yes, there's there's definitely some conflicts of interest over with with our FDA and our CDC, and that's been a problem for for a long time. Uh, it's I, I can't say that uh, I, I I know that oh because of these conflicts of interest that the vaccine was approved or right. you know it's it but the, the the conflicts of interest they are they are quite clear uh, and they they do exist. The FDA is paid the large portion of their salary is paid by pharmaceutical industry and and CDC also takes funding from from industry. So there there's definitely some some issues there to, that to to look that we should as a society try to try to fix those problems with with our government organizations but to say specifically that this led to that i i, I can't sure make, yeah of I, course I <laughs> yeah uh, yeah of course okay so uh with regards to your study do you just want to very briefly outline um how that all started um and yeah. why you wanted to do it um, sure and just and anything that led to that sure like so as i was saying it was the earlier where when the concern when the spike protein was discovered to be be an issue i you know we thought you know with with a with a peter doshi we began just thinking about how can we look into this because if you looked at the pfizer serious adverse event data there was actually a a, a difference between the groups um but it wasn't the you know it was maybe like about a 20% increase in serious adverse events in the vaccine group, but it wasn't big enough that, that it raised the flag, raised the red flag. But we thought maybe the, if we basically look at it with a magnifying glass, if we can get in closer, get rid of some of the events that we know weren't going to be a problem, then we would identify this, this, uh, that there is a action that the vaccine is causing it. And we, we found this list called the Brighton collaboration which was a pre-specified list of uh, serious, they called them serious adverse events of special interest. And we took that, we took that was list. That, and, was that specifically designed for COVID or just for yes. vaccines in general? No, no, no. That was designed for COVID. And it was based on basically the platform, the, the messenger RNA platform and other previous serious adverse events that have been found with, with um, other vaccines. And then also, but the majority of the serious adverse events that it was reporting that it was uh, that were in the list 
were 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 things that COVID COVID nineteen causes. So and those tended to be the things that um, are related to to spike protein. So we thought that this was a, a really good list because it was pre-specified. It was created before the vaccine was even created. It's uh, endorsed by the World Health Organization. And we thought we would apply that to, to look at each serious adverse event in the, that's reported in the Pfizer and Moderna trial. So then we ended up taking uh, the list of, the seri- of all the serious adverse events. And the thing that I found as the, the most surprising of thing was that in the Pfizer trial, in the initial trial, there was simply more serious adverse event. There was 30, uh, 30 they, they reported it by participants who experienced a serious adverse event. But if you count just the number of serious adverse events, there was, there, there was a clear difference between the groups. There was more in the vaccine group. And this is in the original, this is in the original trial data. And the only reason the FDA didn't see that is they didn't count them. They didn't, they only counted the participants. And the problem was that it, the in the vaccine group they were about twice as likely to have multiple serious adverse events so by only counting participants you missed this uh this this difference between groups and so that was that's that was like the first thing when we started this study it was just like yes what's, what's so so what's going on that, though so uh, um if you don't so if you just count participants and not number of adverse reactions of ever of, of total then you said there was twenty. It was still twenty percent higher, which is not statistically significant. Yes. Yeah. So exactly. okay. So so without so without doing that, you still had twenty percent higher adverse events in the vaccine arm compared to the placebo arm. Yeah. But that but that twenty is twenty percent not like that still sounds bad significant to yeah. me. Is that it's, not? It's not not stati- It wouldn't be statistically significant. Really, twenty percent. Yeah. The, the, the numbers are small. It, it was okay. 80, 81 versus 103. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you're dealing with that, then yeah. Okay. I, if you were, if you were dealing with tens of thousands then 20% might be significant, yes, right? For sure. Right. Okay. Got it. Um, all right. Okay. So go on. So that that was one issue you recognized. Yes. And then, and, and do you, and do you, and do you think that, that they, they counted people versus actual number of adverse events because that and obviously you you probably can't even answer this question but obviously if you do it the way that they did it that looks more favorable uh, on the vaccines than if you do it the way that you've done it in your study i you know i i don't believe that they did it for that reason um it's it's it is actually typical to to do it with participants okay and and so they're both of those are of int- are fine, you know they they are looking at the same kind of data, but uh, they're they're just slightly different ways of looking at the same at the kind of the same issue. Is there more harm? Does this does this intervention cause harm? And they're just slightly different intervention, slightly different ways of looking at it. That find uh, you know it's for example, it would be it would be worse if if you know you find purchase if more if if uh, there's more participants who are experiencing an adverse, any adverse event, that's, that's probably worse than one, you know, you know, one person experiencing uh, two events. But, but the thing is, it's also worse if one, it's, it's worse if one person experiences two events is worse than one person experiencing one event. And so, so the, the distinction here is quite, it's, 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 it's very subtle. It's a very subtle difference. And it just so turns out that, in this trial, there 
I, I would imagine that in most interventions, this you wouldn't find one thing to be clearly different and one thing to to not. I think they would normally align, and in this case, they they were. You know, the direction is the same. The direction twenty percent increase the other in in participants, but if you use events, it's thirty six percent. So it's it's mm. the, the direction is the same, but it's 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 the it's larger and and so the critique people critique it in that it's not that's not how we typically count count serious adverse events but there's no reason why there should be um a bias towards the vaccine that why the vaccine should cause multiple should be more likely to cause multiple events than than the placebo if it's not causing the events so there's so there's the issue is that it's is that it's there's no there isn't the, it doesn't bias it towards the vaccine it's just that it a slightly different way and it's not the way that it is it is all you typically counted mm. okay so so you get from 20 percent to 36 percent and so 36 percent is statistically significant well we we didn't actually do uh statistical testing with p values we use um we just reported our conf- confidence intervals uh, P-value, the, the reason why is, um, you know, one of our authors is a very big vocal proponent against using, you know, he would say arbitrary arbitrary th- testing thresholds for significance in that, you know, we, we the, the P-value of 0.05 isn't magical. It just says that there's a 95% chance that, you know, if you repeated the study, it'll be exactly the same. But, you know, if, if you have a P-value of, you know, 0.06, then we say it's not statistically significant, but you know, that, that just means there's a 94% chance. And so if you have, you know, I think, so I think that it's, it's the way we do it is the way that we discuss it is we do confidence, confidence intervals, which shows like, for example, uh, with the Pfizer vaccine, we, like we said, the risk ratio was 36%. So that is a, the, it's a 1.36 is the number. But the 95% confidence interval is 1.02 to 1.83, right? So mm. it, it, it says that the, the, the real number is in that range of 2% to 83% higher. And because our, but then if you, if, if, if the confidence interval drops below 1%, below one in this case, then you would say, oh, it's, it, it, then if you did a statistical significance testing on it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't turn out as significant if it crosses one. So, so, but by looking at it at com- as confidence intervals, it actually gives you a much better appreciation of what you're, of the data that you're looking at. And, and when you're dealing with harms specifically, if there's a 90% chance that, that something's going to cause harm, that's not statistically significant. If there's a 90, if you have a P value of 0.1, that, but I think that if you're for harms, we, we need to be a little bit more careful on, on dismissing, dismissing a, a, a difference between groups that doesn't exactly hit a p-value of, of 0.05. So, so we, yeah, so we don't report it in that, in that fashion. Mm. Okay. Um, before we go on, I usually like to break episodes into two, like an hour each. And so you have another hour, right? So okay. Around one or want to be careful of your time as well. That's okay. I have so I have the next couple of hours free. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to end this episode now and I'm going to email you a link. Hopefully there won't be the same issues. I'm going to start a new room and that, that way I can release kind of part one of this episode and part two of this episode. Cause usually people like smaller chunks. Sure. 
All right. Sure. You're going to email, you'll email it. You're saying. Yeah. I'll, I'll email it to you right now. Okay. The new good. All right. Yep. Okay. Bye-bye.